Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, before we get started, I just had to pass on something that, uh, that Jack sent around on the email. Now, some of you probably got it, but I know some of you didn't. And since it pertains to the topic of legalism, which is tangentially related to our subject this evening, I thought I would share it with everybody. A story about a legalistic preacher who decided he was going to illustrate for the congregation why it was so evil to participate in certain activities. So he brought in, he thought he'd have a great little show-and-tell lesson, so he had four beakers. And one beaker he filled up about halfway with vodka, and the other beaker he filled with cigarette smoke. I didn't say how he got the cigarette smoke. But. <laughs> and the third beaker he put filled up about halfway with chocolate sauce, and then the last beaker he filled up with, with good soil. So he put a worm in each of the four beakers, and the worm in the alcohol died, and the worm in the cigarette smoke died. And the worm in the chocolate sauce died, but the worm in the good soil was healthy. So he said, now, what do we learn from this? And an old lady in the back of the church piped up, we learned that if you, if you drink and smoke and drink, eat a lot of chocolate, you won't get worms. I really like that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much that we have your word to go to, that it explains to us all the many facets of our condemnation and sin, as well as all the many facets of our complex and great salvation that is so simple to acquire that all we do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for us. Father, as we continue this study in Romans chapter 5, we pray that you'd help us to put these things together and have a clear understanding of all that you have done for us in salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans chapter 5. Verse 12, and we've been working our way into this, trying to answer the question related to the transmission of sin and guilt on the human race. And this is a very important issue because at the very root of this is a, has to do with how believers handle the guilt of sin and personal sin. After salvation, of course, that's related to confession, 1 John 1, 9. But this is such a problem and for so many Christians. In fact, recently there was a 
young man from our extended congregation who attended a, a, I'll just say a Christian conference, spent a couple of weeks there, and it was mostly high school, college age uh, people there at the conference, and the leader of his group was a college age kid, but he just, he said they were so caught up with dealing with their own personal sins, and they were, everybody seemed to be so overwhelmed with guilt and so focused on the fact that they committed sin and what could they do about this, and nobody understood the principles of 1 John 1, nine, and nobody, including the group leader, really had a good handle on how the cross really wipes out the condemnation of sin and how we are free and have liberty in Christ, and rather than focusing on the sin and the failure, focus on the grace provision of God. And it just comes down to a failure to understand a lot of things that we have in passages like this. And it's because these things are not taught very well today. And in many cases, as I was studying this and working through a number of issues, one of the commentaries that I consulted, which is a recent commentary by a well-known professor at an evangelical seminary, makes the comment that this is the position of the vast majority of of scholars. The basic understanding of, of Romans chapter 5 is that relates to sin and guilt. But it's just not taught today because everybody's so afraid they're going to teach something then somebody's not going to quite understand it and then they won't come back that they just keep watering everything down. Uh, these are pa- the kind of passages... You can't water down, and it takes a lot of time to work through them because your initial, as you initially read a passage like this in the English, it seems to us that it's saying one thing when, in fact, it's saying something else. But we get confused because of the way we use a lot of terms in our everyday Christian, American, evangelical jargon and we don't use them the same way they're used scripturally or biblically, number one. And number two, in the scripture, there is a certain amount of ambiguity that is only resolved if you stop and think logically about what is being said. Then it clears itself up. For example, as we get into Romans 5.12, Paul starts off with this conclusion, therefore, just as... Through one man sin entered entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now, frankly, there's a couple of things in here that can be clarified by amplifying the translation based on the original language. But before we get into that, let me just remind you of the overview of this section. Verse 12 begins this comparison and contrast between the entry of sin into the human race through one man and salvation through the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the comparison and contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. In verses 13 and 14, we have an aside that begins that deals with the issue of sin and death and qualifies what kind of sin and death he's talking about. And therein lies part of the confusion because the word sin is used three ways in the New Testament. You have Adam's original sin, the sin nature, and personal sin. And then death is used at least seven different ways in Scripture to describe physical death, spiritual death, 
positional death, carnal death, uh, all these different kinds of death that you have in the Scripture that we've gone over in the past, and you have to stop and think, what are we talking about here? And then when we come to passages such as the end of the verse or a phrase where it says, because all sinned, is that personal sin or is that a corporate sin that was a sin in Adam? And the understanding that this is a corporate sin in Adam is what I referred to a minute ago, that is the understanding, the correct understanding, the proper understanding of the vast majority of Bible expositors down through the centuries. They're just a minority have diverged from that, trying to make it personal sin. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through the class tonight, because the basic problem, if you make it personal sin, then condemnation is related to your personal sin. And that is a heavy burden to bear. And this passage really just rejects that whole idea that your condemnation is based on your personal sin. And yet so many Christians or unbelievers are all caught up with the fact that God's condemning them for their personal sin. And then when they're saved, they have a really hard time understanding how to deal with their post-salvation personal sins because for them they think, this is the basis for all of the uh, all the condemnation of God. Now, when we look at at the issue of personal sin, we also have to understand uh, some various other aspects in terms of of uh, Christ's substitutionary work, and we'll do that as we go through the lesson tonight. So, verse twelve begins the comparison. Verse thirteen and fourteen gives a a qualification related to the kind of sin, kind of death being covered. Verses 15 through 17 then uh, contrast Christ and Adam in terms of the one issue that is at, at that is the point of the analogy. And then verse 18 to 21 brings out that one point of the connection which emphasizes the fact that Adam's sin affects the whole race and the comparison is that just as one man's action affected the whole race in terms of the first Adam, so another man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, one man's actions can affect the entire human race. So we come to the an expanded translation emphasizing the articles in the original Greek should be understood that just as through one man the sin entered the world, and as I pointed out last time, this is a use of the Greek article that is defined as par excellence. Now, that doesn't mean that it's indicating something that is qualitatively high. It is simply setting apart a particular thing from everything else within its category. So it's not talking about just any sin. It is talking about a particular sin that is unique and distinct from all other sins. And so Paul writes, just as through one man, the sin, not just sin, not just evil, not just some sort of nebulous, abstract, general principle of sin entering into human history, but the sin, that is the sin of Adam, that sin that we refer to as Adam's, original sin, entered the world, and the death, once again, the use of the article there, is going to distinguish this death from all these other kinds of death. That he's not talking about 
physical death. So many people read physical death into the penalty for sin. It's a consequence of the penalty, as we've seen, but it is not the penalty. So it is this death that comes in through the sin. And then the last part of the conclusion of that verse, as we've seen, thus is the Greek word hutos, which indicates thus that is in this manner death spread to all men because all sinned. It is the all sinned that's at issue. Is this all sinned personally or all sinned corporately? And as I pointed out already, we have the issue of whether this is talking about all sinned personally or whether all sinned in terms of some sort of participation in Adam's original sin. Now, if this is all sin personally, that would mean, just think with me logically here, if this is that all sin personally, that would mean the condemnation or the penalty of sin only comes once somebody commits personal sin. The implication of that is that they are not born condemned. They are born innocent. I don't mean innocent in the sense of naive. I mean innocent in the sense of not guilty. Innocent in the sense of not tainted by Adam's original sin. And so if the sinning here is understood to be personal sin, then you have infants and everybody being born neutral. That was the Pelagian heresy, is thinking that people are born in the same state Adam was created created in, and a state of absolute neutrality, not condemned, not guilty, and therefore possible that they could live their entire life without sinning. That view has been rejected by Orthodox theologians on the basis of numerous scriptures, including the correct exegesis of this passage, down through the ages. And Paul is, is rejecting that in the way that he is dealing with sin in this passage. That's why he qualifies things to illustrate them in verses 13 through 14. So he, by the way, the way he qualifies things in verses 13 to 14, plus what he says in verse 17, we understand that it is the sinning at the end of verse 12 is Adam's original sin, not personal sin. Let me show you. Look at verse 17. If by the one, for if by the one man's offense, if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. See, right there it tells you that we're talking about the sin of the one who brings about this death and condemnation that goes to the entire human race. So it's that distributive use of that Greek preposition dia, which I mentioned a couple of lessons back. So in light of verse 17, verse 12 can only refer to a corporate sin, a corporate participation in Adam's sin. Now, the next question we address is what kind of death this is, and I've already alluded to that once, but this death all through here has to be spiritual death. Now, I've had ongoing discussions with some close friends of mine who try to convince me that the penalty for sin is not spiritual death, that when God said to Adam in Genesis 2.17, that uh, the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. That that would include physical death. As I pointed out when I discussed that, that you'll find in a lot of the creationist literature, uh, 
this blending of these uh, these ideas, and they see physical death as part of the penalty. I know that I, I've read that from men from ICR. I've read that from men from Answers in Genesis. You just need to be aware of that. I'm in the process, by the way, of trying to get Ken Ham to come here for the Chafer uh, Conference. Unfortunately, he's booked through 2008 and 2009, so I've got a book in for, I'm working on booking him for 2010. So we'll have an, hopefully we'll have a, a conference in March of 2010 on evolution and creation. But he's one. I've heard him on several of his tapes and we'll show some of his DVDs here at times. And you'll hear things like that. And you just need to think intelligently. Just because somebody disagrees on this point or that point, doesn't mean you just wash out everything else they say. You always have to exercise a little discernment. By the way, this is as good a time as any to prepare you for next January. It looks right now that, we're, that when I go to Kiev, we're going to have, uh, aside from Ike speaking on Sunday mornings, and he may not speak all the Sunday mornings. We don't know what the schedule is going to be. But there, we had a situation we're trying to resolve, and it looks like it's going to be uh, resolved in an extremely efficient manner for Christians. Usually things aren't this, this simple. There, well, Ariel Ministries has been trying to kidnap Bruce back there to videotape uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum teaching a number of courses so they can get these courses on permanent record on video. At the same time, Chafer Seminary has been using Arnold to teach various modules at Chafer Seminary out in Southern California. Well, that's become a little bit of an issue now since Arnold moved his ministry to San Antonio. And then um, we've been trying to figure out a way to get Arnold to come and just teach some things here uh, on a special conference. But Arnold's like Ken Ham and others, their schedule's cranked out there for three years, and it's hard to work your calendar three years in advance. So uh, somebody back there in the back came up with a great idea that with this streaming video and that we can stream these classes that Arnold needs to teach for Chafer Seminary. Well, the classes that Arnold needs to teach for Chafer Seminary are the same classes that Ariel wants recorded permanently on DVD, and we wanted to come and fill in. And it turned out that he had a couple of open dates in January, but he really couldn't go anywhere. He replied to me on an email about two weeks, two days ago. He couldn't really come in January because he had to spend most of the month teaching uh, a module at Schaefer Seminary in California. So we figured out, hmm, all he has to do is come here and teach it from the pulpit here, and we kill three birds with one stone. So that will be a seminary-level Type instruction, 28 hours of instruction for a regular two-hour, 14-week semester. So we've got to figure out how we're going to work that in the time I'm gone. And uh, But you can at least look forward to the fact that Arnold will be coming for a little intense instruction, intensive instruction in January. But the reason I got off on Arnold is because when... I had Arnold come in and teach on the same subject, which is the um, Jewish perspective on the life of Christ in Connecticut. One of the first things I heard when I got back, I hardly walked in the door. I got somebody mentioned four things that Arnold taught that uh, I would disagree with. 
So you will spot them, and we deal with people like that in graciousness. So there are some differences here, and this issue on the penalty as being spiritual death instead of physical death is one of them. But it's so important. Ephesians 2.1, as I pointed out, is very clear. You he made alive who were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Well, they were physically alive, but they were dead. And in a few minutes, I'm going to go through uh, Romans chapter 7, and we'll see the same thing there, that it's got to be spiritual death and not physical death. So the point that Paul is making in these two next two verses, verses 13 and 14, is number one, there was no law from Adam to Moses. No law from Adam to Moses. Now, why is that important? Well, as we'll see, the reason it's important is because Jews in the audience thought that we're defining sin in terms of breaking the law. So he's going to go to a period of time where there was no Mosaic law, but yet there was condemnation and there was sin. Second thing he is pointing out is, nevertheless, though there was no law, all or everyone from Adam to Moses were born spiritually dead. They were born under condemnation. So their spiritual death and condemnation wasn't related to breaking any specific commandment or prohibition in the Mosaic Law. Okay, that's just sort of the overview, the bird's eye view of this. Now let me break it down in a little more detail. First of all, in terms of Gentiles, many people believe that you're condemned for what you do that it's your personal sin. If you go out and commit murder, then your condemnation is based on murder. If you tell a little white lie, then your condemnation is based on telling a little white lie. So therefore, condemnation is really rather relative. Some people are going to be condemned a lot more than others. Somebody who's just some sweet little old legalistic, self-righteous lady sitting at first uh, Methopresbyterian church, but never trusts in Christ and just has little sins of gossip and maligning and, you know, things like that, doesn't get condemned as much as someone like Adolf Hitler or Stalin or uh, Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein or somebody who is a pervert and a mass murderer and all of these other things, right? I mean, that's how the average person thinks, is that there's got to be relativity to this condemnation because your sins aren't aren't as nice as my sins, so you're really going to get punished more. And that's their, uh, too often, that's their uh, position. The problem with that is underlying it is a basic assumption. Let me test, see if you're listening. Underlying that's a basic assumption that you're good or bad. Good. Underlying the whole idea that you're you're condemned on the basis of your personal sin and that there's this relativity there assumes that man is basically good. That's the underlying assumption, that you only become a sinner by committing sins. The old uh, adage, that, uh, the old um, thing that they use to confuse students in Bible college, are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Well, we sin because we're a sinner, but the problem is that people think that we're basically good, so we're sinners because we commit sin. But that's not the biblical picture. That would indicate that we're born free from sin, free from guilt, free from condemnation, and not spiritually dead. It would also imply that one person could be better than another person 
And because one person only committed some small, insignificant, socially acceptable sin, and the other person was a sexual pervert and committed all kinds of politically incorrect sins, that there would be different levels of condemnation and different levels of depravity. Because we don't really like to think that people are all that bad. We're pretty good. But that's not the picture the Bible has. So that's the problem with Gentiles. That'd be the first point. The Gentiles tend to think that people are condemned only for what they do for their own personal sins. For the Jews, on the other hand, the problem is the law, the Mosaic law. Under the Pharisees, after the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity, they were so concerned with protecting themselves from ever being kicked out of the land again that instead of turning completely to God in obedience to God, they just set up this external uh, rigorous system of obedience around the Mosaic Law with all of these different uh, rabbinical traditions. So for the Jews, the problem is the law, and they defined sin as a violation of the Mosaic Law. But Paul is going to do an end run around them by focusing on a period of time in history prior to the Mosaic Law. That Okay, if you're going to define sin as violating the Mosaic Law, then what do you do with all these people who lived for those 2,500 years between Adam and Moses who, who died? physically, as a result of sin, and who were born spiritually dead and were under condemnation. So, in verses 13 and 14, Paul's going to explain exactly why that is wrong. So, he says, for until the law, and I actually I should have capitalized that because he's not talking about law in general. He is talking about the Mosaic law. He said, for until the law... Personal sin was in the world. Now, I put that in there, uh, inserted that personal sin just for clarification, because he's understanding that personal sin is in the world. All these people are committing personal sins. But the only commandment that God has given is related to what he told Adam. Adam had specific revelation and prohibition. Moses has not only specific revelation, he has 613 commandments. In the Mosaic Law, it's not just 10 commandments, it's 613 commandments. So what Paul is saying is that the law, for until the law, personal sin was in the world, but personal sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, that is a confusing statement for a lot of people, and we'll develop that in just a minute. Let me make a couple more points about the law. This reference is to the Mosaic law. It's not to just governmental law. The law had a a variety of purposes. It was given as part of an entire document that was designed to regulate the people in terms of criminal law, civil law, and ceremonial law. Criminal law, civil law, and ceremonial law. So it's not just dealing with uh, criminality. It's not just dealing with, with uh, civil issues or just with that which refers to ritual or, uh, or ceremony. Its purpose, spiritually though, 
was to expose sin, not to provide a way for salvation. It wasn't that if you, if you obey all these commandments, you can be saved. That is how it's been misunderstood, but that wasn't its, its purpose. In Romans 3.20, Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So one of the purposes for the Mosaic Law was to expose the sinfulness of man. In Romans 7, you might just turn over. Or in Romans 5, if you just turn over a page, you'll be in Romans 7. We're going to look at several key verses in Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 5, we read, For when we were in the flesh, Paul is talking about being an unbeliever from his position as being a believer. But when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Okay? Let's clarify things. When we were in the flesh, meaning a term for the unbeliever can't do anything. The unbeliever can't do anything but sin. He doesn't have an alternative operating system. He just has one operating system, which is the sin nature. So all he can do comes out of the sin nature. All of his morality comes out of the sin nature. All of his immorality comes out of the sin nature. So Paul says, but we were in the flesh, sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, if you don't think that law can arouse sin, just watch some three-year-old and tell him not to do something. (laughs) As soon as you tell them not to do something, they're going to go try to do it. You have, by establishing a law, you have aroused their sinful passions. That's just the way we are. So Paul says that the law arouses these sinful passions that's at work in our members, that is, in our... The term our members refers to the physical body. As we'll see before we're done, the sin nature is located really within the physical part of our makeup. The, The law was at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Now, is this death spiritual or physical? It's spiritual. They're still dead and they're living on carnality. And he's re- it's the realization of spiritual death is where, where he's going here. He leaves a lot out. It's, it's very interesting, but as I point, as you'll see when we get down into verses uh, 7, 9, 12, 13, he keeps talking about the law uh, killed me. The law didn't kill him. He was already dead spiritually, and it didn't kill him physically. So he's talking about the, how the law exposes the fact that we are spiritually dead. So when he talks about bearing fruit to death, the production of the law is to expose the fact that we can't save ourselves. We're spiritually dead. That's the underlying uh, argument in these verses from about 7 to 13. In verse five, I mean, verse seven, we read, "What shall we say then? Is the law sin?" See, I've had people tell me that Mosaic law must have been horrible because look at what the Pharisees did with it. No, the Pharisees perverted the law. The law, as we'll see in a minute, was inherently righteous. So Paul is asking that same rhetorical question: If the law produces sin or exposes sin, is it sin itself? He says, "Certainly not." In the Greek, it's meganoito which is an extremely strong rejection of the idea. He says, is the law sin? No! 
On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law exposes and reveals to us that we are sinners and spiritually dead. He said, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So the law not only exposes sin, but it also reveals man's inability to live up to God's standard. The law wasn't given to give you a way to live up to God's standard, but to expose the fact that you can't. Verse Romans 7, 9, Paul says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The law exposed the fact that he could not live up to it. When, when he thought he could do the first nine commandments, but when God said don't covet, that revealed mental attitude sins, and he, he couldn't live up to that standard. So it revealed the fact that he was dead. He was, when he says, and I died, he, he didn't become dead. He, had already, he was already spiritually dead, but experientially he came to the realization that he was spiritually dead. Romans 7.13 then, he says, Has then what is good become death to me? What is good is referring to the law. What is good, that is the Mosaic law, has that become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin or be revealed or exposed as sin, was producing death in me. What kind of death? It's really revealing it. It's not making, manufacturing the death at this time. He's an unbeliever. The law is functioning to expose to the unbeliever that he's spiritually dead and unable to have a relationship with God based on what he does. So sin was producing, we could paraphrase it, sin was producing a knowledge of my own spiritual death in me through what is good so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, that I might realize how bad sin really is. So physical death wouldn't work on any of these passages because he's still alive. He was alive many years later when he wrote this epistle to the Romans, so it has to be a reference to spiritual death. And then in terms of the nature of the law... We read back in verse 12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. That characterizes the entirety of the Mosaic law. It wasn't a system that was designed to bind men or to imprison men or to enslave men to some sort of rigorous, awful law code. That just doesn't fit what... Everything says in the Scripture, the law by its very nature was holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Now, let's go back to Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, we read, death, that is spiritual death, reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So it sends over all these people who lived from Adam to Moses, or Cain and Abel and Seth and uh, Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and all the others that lived during that period. They were all spiritually dead. But they didn't sin according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. What in the world does that mean? That means that their sin was personal sin, 
But unlike Adam's sin, it wasn't in violation of a revealed prohibition of God. The word there for transgression for Adam isn't the same word we've seen for sin up to this point, which is hamartia, missing the mark. It's parabasis, meaning a transgression or a violation of a particular uh, or specific law. The idea is that, that people were spiritually dead and they committed spiritual sin, but they're not condemned for violating any specific prohibition from God. You have the prohibition that God reveals in Genesis 2.17. You have later specific prohibitions that are revealed in the Mosaic Law. But Paul says their sin was sin, and they were born spiritually dead, but it isn't the same kind of sin as Adam's, because Adam is is violating a specific revealed uh, prohibition. So he's narrowly defining sin as breaking a stated or revealed uh, mandate or prohibition. So Adam's sin broke a law of God, as it were, and he's saying to the Jews, see, all these people sinned, they're all spiritually dead and condemned before the Mosaic Law even was articulated. So what's the basis for their condemnation? They did not sin in the same way that... Uh, Adam sinned, who's a type of him who was to come. So we ask that question, why were they condemned? The cause of death is sin, but it can't be their personal sins in light of Romans 5, 17, and 18. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. See, it's that one man's offense again. Keeps going back in, in Romans 5, 17, and 18 to the one man's offense, verse uh, 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. It is Adam's sin, and we refer to it as Adam's original sin because it's, first of all, it's Adam's sin, not Eve's. Second, it is original in the sense that it is a unique sin, a one-of-a-kind sin. It's not the same sin that Eve commits. It is different. It is qualitatively different because he's the designated head of the race. So only Adam could commit this kind of sin. Eve could not. And it is the basis for the condemnation of the entire human race. So we read in verse 18, Therefore, it's through one man's offense, judgment, katakrima, indicating that condemnation came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. That's where we see the comparison with what happens on the cross through one man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, through his righteous act, the free gift is available. See, Adam's original sin automatically goes to everybody, but the benefit of the work on the cross doesn't automatically go to everybody. But the point that he's making is that one man's decision affects the whole in both, in both cases. Romans 5.19, for it's by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. That's the point of the analogy. One man's decision affects, uh, affects an entire group. So the point that he gets at, which we emphasized last week, going back to Romans 5.13, is that all people sinned in and with Adam. That's the conclusion of verse 12. It can't be personal sin. It's got to be corporate sin. Therefore, he says, 
um, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. In and with Adam. And then he go, goes on in uh, 5.13 to explain this. For And it should open with a parenthesis. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the word, let me skip that. The word for imputed is eulogeo. Eulogeo is your primary word, verb used for imputation. It means to reckon, impute, or to charge something to someone's account. It doesn't mean they uh, actually have done anything. Let's think about salvation. When Christ saves you, you are not, you do not do, have any moral change in you. That is one of the hardest things for people to understand. There's basically two different views on how you get righteous. One is called imputed righteousness, and the other view is infused righteousness. Now, if you're Roman Catholic, you have a view of infused righteousness. If you're lordship, you don't know it, but you've really bought into this idea. It's the idea that you somehow between become qualitatively less depraved because there really is some sort of internal moral change that takes place. But the Greek verb dikaiao means to make or declare righteous. It's a judicial term. It doesn't mean you are righteous. It's just that legally you've been declared righteous. And you've been declared righteous because you have been given the righteousness of Christ. Let me use a somewhat uh, simplistic illustration. You want to buy a house. You want to go out and buy a nice $200,000 home and so you, uh, but you don't have any money. Not only do you not have any money, your credit rating's in the double digits. You got a credit rating of 10. So there's no way that you can get a loan or qualify for a loan. Nobody's going to loan you a dime. But your cousin is Bill Gates. And so you go to Bill Gates and you, you, uh, see if he'll co-sign on a loan. And he's going to co-sign on the loan. Now he doesn't put any money in your bank account. You still don't have any credit. And you still are a credit risk, and you still don't have any money. But what the bank looks at is the money in his account, not the money in your account. Nothing's changed with you. You're not any better than you were before. But on the basis of what somebody else has done, you're going to get the, the mortgage. You're going to get the blessing. And that's what justification is. On the basis of Christ's righteousness, we get saved. It has nothing, to, there's no transaction at salvation that changes you and makes you righteous. You are declared righteous. And so, and it's not on the basis of your personal sin. I mean, the condemnation's not on the basis of your personal sin, because if it was, you'd have probably been in the lake of fire already. See, we go to 2 Corinthians 5.19. That Christ, the God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That's that violation of a standard. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God didn't impute to you your, the condemnation from your personal sin. Same thing Paul said in Romans 5.8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. 
See, our personal sins aren't imputed to us. They're imputed to Christ. God, in his wisdom, in the way he sets up salvation, is that he imputes to us Adam's original sin so that you're condemned not because of your little white sins and you're condemned because of your black sins, so there's a difference in condemnation. We're all condemned for the same sin. So our condemnation is totally equal. There is a complete equivalency there. Nobody's any better or any worse. There's no sliding scale. There's no relativity. Everybody is equally condemned for the same event, which is that sin of Adam's in Genesis chapter 3. And God in history postponed dealing with personal sin until the cross, and at the cross he imputes to Christ all of our personal sins so that Adam's original sin and our personal sins are all dealt with on the cross so that personal sins aren't an issue. The issue is a focus on the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. So, in summary, number one, this ver- these two verses, 2 Corinthians 5.19 and Romans 4.8, tell us that God is not condemning us for our personal sins. Second point that Paul's making here is that the sins from Adam to Moses and on down to Christ are set aside and then imputed to Christ on the cross. They're paid for by him so that when you are dealing with any believer or any unbeliever and they're concerned about, well, I did this or I did that, how can God forgive me? The issue isn't their personal sin. That's not what they're condemned for. They're condemned for what Adam did. And as a result of receiving the imputation of Adam's original sin, they now commit personal sins, and Jesus Christ deals with them on the cross. So that Adam's, this is the third point in summary, Adam's first sin, Adam's original sin, was the sin for which we're all condemned. Now for Adam, it was a personal sin, but it was a unique kind of sin. It was the determinative sin for his own spiritual life, and for his all of his descendants. So, in conclusion, point five, we're not condemned for personal sin. Now, that leads us to two other important points. Number one, because Christ died for our personal sins as a real substitute, that means those sins are paid for. Even... If you reject Christ as your Savior, your sins are still paid for. Remember, I've taught many times there are three things you have to have to get into heaven. The first thing you have to have is you have to have uh, the righteousness of Christ. The second thing you have to have, or the first thing you have to have is the penalty of sin needs to be paid for. The second thing you have to have is perfect righteousness. The third thing you have to have is that your spiritual death needs to be exchange for for spiritual life, regeneration. So you have to have the imputation of righteousness, number two, and you have to have regeneration, number three. Now, Christ died for everybody, so everybody has, number one, taken care of. Everybody has their personal sins paid for. Everybody has a sin penalty paid for by Christ on the cross. So that's not the issue. The issue is to trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ, then you'll receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and you will be uh, regenerated. 
But if you don't trust in Christ, those two things don't happen. So when you show up at the great white throne judgment, your sins are paid for, but you can't get into heaven because you don't have righteousness and you're spiritually dead. And the result is that you will spend eternity in the lake of fire. So in Romans 5.14, Paul says, Nevertheless, the death, that is spiritual death, reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense and their transgression of Adam. Their sin was a different kind of sin. It wasn't like Adam's original sin. And he is a type of him who was to come. And he uses the word tupas, which is uh, where we get the word type of Christ. When I was little and I heard pastors say that, I thought it was one word. But type of Christ means it is an, there's an element, there is a point. Not everything, but there is a point of analogy, a foreshadowing used for teaching purposes between some person or some event in the Old Testament and something to do with the person or the work of Christ in the, in the New Testament. Then Paul goes on in verses 15 through 17 to begin to explain the, just and narrow the point of the analogy. Verse 15, he says, But not like the transgression is the free gift. Now, this is my own translation from the Greek because the word order in the Greek is very different from the way it's translated in, in most English versions. Most English versions say, but the free gift is not like the offense. But in the Greek, it starts with, but, but not, that's the emphasis, but not like the transgression is the free gift, to really draw out this contrast there, that the free gift isn't anything like the transgression. So you can't go to this uh, comparison and contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam and just willy-nilly pull out anything you want. It's a very narrow, narrowly defined comparison and contrast. Paul says, For if by the one man's transgression, that is by Adam's transgression, he violated a specifically stated commandment. He's consistent with the way he's using the word for transgression here. Many died spiritually. Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And we and I add for clarification, many who believe. It's not just automatically given to them. It is based on their belief in Christ. Now, when we look at this whole concept of the sin nature then, how that's transmitted, we have to understand the different, because that's how we got into this study, is, okay, what's transmitted physically, what's transmitted through federal headship? And the point that he's been making so far is, in, in many ways, in this analogy between Christ and Adam, there has to be this representative aspect. Last week, I looked at how this ran its course through the Old Testament. You had the case of Achan in Joshua chapter uh, 7, who disobeyed God but went and, and hoarded the, the plunder from Jericho and buried it under his tent. And then when uh, the Israelites got ready to go and attack Ai, God caused them to lose. Why? Because Israel sinned, the text says. Well, nobody knew it. It was a secret sin. Achan sinned, but nobody else knew it. But God says, no, Israel sinned. It's the idea of corporate representation or headship. So that's there. But there's also the physical relationship because we're all physically tied into 
Adam. So the sin nature gets transmitted physically. And there's all these verses, I've only listed a few up here, that use very physical terms to talk about the sin nature. Of course, there are those who come along and say, well, this is all metaphor, it's all figurative. But see, once you start down that road, you can't explain other things. Romans 6.6, Paul says, knowing this, that our old man, that's a our unregenerate nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin, very physical term, the body composed of sin might be done away with. That's this corporate body that we have that is condemned and is under the condemnation of sin. It's, uh, it's corrupt. Uh, Romans 7, 5, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by law were at work in our members. Again, a reference to physical aspect of our of our makeup. Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, this term flesh or sarx is used all through the New Testament as a term for the sin nature. Again, it's a very physical term. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So there's that, that contrast. And then you have, we use the term sin nature, and this, the whole aspect of nature, I've been told, is, is now um, theologically incorrect in evangelicalism. You can't talk about nature. Uh, what do you mean by nature? Everybody's confused about it. Well, you know, the term is used in Scripture, and it talks about the fact that we're born uh, by nature. Look at that, Ephesians 2, 3. Paul used the word thusis there, by nature, and I guess he's theologically incorrect. At the last line, he says, we were by nature children of wrath. That is our makeup, this, this thing that constitu- we're constitutionally corrupt and spiritually dead. There is this thing in us that when the law says don't do it, we can't wait to do it. And that is this propensity to disobedience to God that is our sin nature, this uh, inclination to to disobedience, to doing it our own way rather than, than God's way. So this sin nature, this corruption is passed on physically and the guilt of Adam's original sin, I don't know if you remember, but back two or three classes ago when I put the chart up with the different uh, ways in which uh, theologians have tried to solve this, you had Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and you had um, uh, uh, Augustinianism and Federalism and I said so one of the issues is that with uh, Pelagianism and Arminianism, you, you have man either not fallen at all, no guilt, or he's fallen but no guilt. And, and, but the point is by nature, that sin nature is passed on, but by the, at birth, that sin nature, the guilt of Adam's sin is imputed to that sin nature. So the passing of the sin nature is related to that physical, seminal aspect, and the imputation is based on representation, and that has to do with the federal headship. So they both come together uh, in God's plan. So it's not one against the other, but they're both true. Now, just in conclusion, we got off into about a three-month diversion with the origin of human life and the origin and transmission of the soul, origin transmission of sin nature based on uh, Hebrews 7, 9, and 10. Now, in conclusion, what I want to point out from Romans 5 is this verse is cited like a proof text. And proof text is where you just make a statement, just put it in parentheses and move on, just as Hebrews 7, 9, and 10 is. But Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, if we just go back and look at it briefly as we wrap up, 
um, we read in, in New King James teach, says it like translates it like most English versions do uh, with the phrase so to speak or in a manner of speaking at the end of the verse but in the Greek it's at the very beginning and should be translated in a manner of speaking or in figurative speech even Levi who receives tithes pay tithes through Abraham and Again and again and again, I find that this verse is thrown out there to support this idea that somehow Levi is uh, cognitively almost and responsibly um, uh, paying tithes to Melchizedek, and he, he's four generations down from uh, from Abraham. And the emphasis there is on that first phrase in the Greek, "in a manner of speaking." It's figurative. All the writer of Hebrews is saying is if the father, Abraham, is subordinate to Melchizedek, how much more the descendant of the father and the priesthood that comes from him, the Levites, would be subordinate to the, to the priesthood of Melchizedek. If Abraham wasn't as great as Melchizedek, Levi certainly wasn't as great as Melchizedek, and the little Levitical priesthood wouldn't be as great as Melchizedek. That's all he is saying. But what happens is that people have jumped to wrong conclusions in the process of exegesis. And then they go to Romans chapter 5, and Romans chapter 5 gets equally uh, pulled out for, usually for federalism, and there are problems there. What I've pointed out to you is based on inference and using this comparison and contrast with uh, Adam and with Christ, that they're both they both can have what they do transmitted to the whole race because there's a physical connection. You can't, I mean, you, you, you understand that from the text, but it's also true that they represent the whole group that they represent. And so that's federalism. So both aspects are true. And that uh, the importance of bottom line on it is, as we've looked at tonight in Romans chapter 5, is that it helps us to understand that we're not condemned for what we do. We're all equally condemned for Adam's sin as our representative, as the physical head and as the federal head of the human race. We're not condemned for our personal sin. Those personal sins were not imputed to us. They are imputed to Christ on the cross, and he pays the penalty. So the issue for us, either at salvation or after salvation, isn't sin. Now, that doesn't mean we're minimizing sin. That doesn't mean uh, we're promoting licentiousness. It is a recognition that Christ paid the penalty, and grace provides the solution. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. And next time we'll get back into Hebrews 7 and start getting ahead there. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these passages, think through these difficult concepts because they are not that easy to understand and help us to have a greater understanding of just how our condemnation is wrapped up in Adam's sin but our salvation was taken care of by what Christ did on the cross so that by simply trusting in him, all sin, all guilt is dealt with, and that doesn't need to be a focus in our lives. Rather, the focus needs to be on all that you've given us and pushing forward in the spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.